This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. There have been various announcements uh, by the provincial government over the last couple of weeks now uh, over the, uh, involving the province's labor and employment sector. There was the announcement, of course, about uh, living wage projects, and that's going to take place here in Hamilton. Uh, minimum wage has been increased to a $15.00. And uh, yesterday they announced legislation that's going to ensure workers can now take at least 10 sick days a year without needing a doctor's note. Now, in many circles, this is being hailed as uh, advancing and uh, the, the plight of people that are always getting a rough deal from employers, and we understand that. But there has been some pushback. You uh, heard from Richard Corsill a couple of weeks ago on the program here from the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, and uh, you also heard from the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce and other business leaders that are saying, wait a second, wait a second, you guys don't get the impact this is going to have on business. And this is a very fragile economy here in Ontario. Well, is this good news or is this a problem for the people that are trying to keep businesses going? Ian Lee is with the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. He joins us on the Bill Keller Show to talk about this. Good morning, Ian. How are you doing today? Good morning, Bill. I'm How, doing just fine. Is, is this a black and white issue? Is it, uh, this good for the workers and bad for business? Or is the middle, middle ground here that we can actually latch on to? Uh, well, there should be middle ground. I don't think that they chose or selected the middle ground. I think that this is these are pretty radical policies. Um, by the way, I want to disclose right up front for your listeners, I do not consult to any business or business association or business entity of any kind anywhere on the planet Earth. And I don't have any stocks or bonds or dividends or investment income. My salary comes completely from Carleton. So I'm not on someone else's payroll other than Carleton University. Um, the... I've been studying this. I've written op-eds on this. And um, the fundamental problem is this, and I, I want to put it as, as, as logically as possible. All of the advocates for these various proposals, policies, living wage, uh, much more generous uh, benefits, uh, are going to drive up the cost of wages significantly. And people say, well, that's a good thing because these are people at the lower end of the, at the, low end of, the uh, of the scale. But the uh, unstated assumption that no one advocating these policies is addressed is the, the unstated assumption that you can drive up the costs of business by 10 or 20 or 30 percent, and there are no negative consequences. In other words, they're implicitly assuming there's a free lunch. And I mean by that, wages are one of the, this is from StatScan, wages are one of the largest costs of, of any business, whether in the service sector or manufacturing or a, uh, in any sector at all, wages are a very critical cost. They're driving them up far beyond the inflation rate and far beyond the, the revenue, the annual revenues that the firm is getting. I mean by that, if the revenues are going up 2% on average in most businesses, which they are, because that's the totality of GDP. GDP is growing at about 2% a year, which is another way of saying revenues for firms are growing in that 2% range. That's an average. Now, if you drive the cost of these business, businesses up by 20 or 30 percent or more, and your revenues that you pay these costs with are not going up by 20 or 30 percent, they're only going up by 2 percent, then something has got to give. Something will give. There's no free lunch. There's no magic bullet. And what we know historically what happens if if wages adjust upward very dramatically and very quickly, firms economize on their wage costs. And they can do it. People, I've had people write me and say, oh, you're crazy. They can't, firms can't get rid of their workers. No, but they can cut back. And they can say, you know, instead of having five cashiers open at Loblaws, 
we'll only have two cashiers. Well, we've already seen that, haven't we? We've already seen it, and we've seen firms across the retail sector in the last two, three years uh, spending more and more money on automated checkout technology because they've crunched the numbers in Loblaw's head office, Home Depot head office, Rona head office, Canadian Tire head office, and so forth, and they have clearly made the decision that the capital cost of buying those checkout counters is less expensive over a certain period of time because you amortize, you make assumptions and amortize this over a certain period of time. It's cheaper, it's increasingly cheaper to use automated checkout technology than it is to use minimum wage labor. And that was when minimum wage was at $11 an hour. So what I'm suggesting very clearly is that these many firms are going to be using less labor. It's already happened. My own daughter works part-time minimum wage, and she's had her hours cut. And, you know, one, one can say, well, there's different reasons the firm wasn't doing that well. And that's certainly true in her case without going into the details. But she's had her hours cut because the firm is struggling to survive. So you cut back on your wage costs, and the owner is working longer hours instead of using uh, more part-time uh, workers um, and students, such as such as my daughter. And so what we're going to see in Ontario, I believe, is the increasing uh, substitution of, of uh, this, this kind of technology, and we're going to see longer queuing or wait lines in, in the checkout lines of each store. There will be less people on the floor, uh, whether it's at Walmart or at Sears or whatever, because the, their revenues are not going up 20, 30, 40%, but their costs are going to be going up by that magnitude because of the aggregate effect of all of these policies. Ian, uh, thanks as always for laying the groundwork for this. I always appreciate your perspective on this. Uh, thanks. Have a great weekend. We'll talk again soon. Okay, thanks, Bill. Ian Lee, of course, from the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. Well, where is the government's mindset on this? And, and as, as we talked about in the outset, there are two lines of thought here. Obviously, we've talked with people that are, are working in poverty reduction in this province, and there are some things that need to be addressed in here. But uh, does, has the province actually taken into consideration the impact and the concerns of small business uh, when making these policies? Kevin Flynn is the Minister of Labor for the Ontario government, and uh, he joins us on the Bill Keller Show to talk about that. Mr. Minister, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you with us today. My pleasure, Bill. Thanks for having me in, uh, on the show today. Kevin, I know that uh, you I know you were listening to, to uh, Ian Lee just a second ago, but you, these are things that you've heard, of course, before over the last number of months as as you were uh, talking and, and developing policies like this. How do, how do you respond to the concerns that are being raised by, by small business in particular about the impact this may have on, on what they're trying to do and their bottom line? Well, small business have been involved in this process through the Chamber of Commerce and through individuals that came out. It was a two-year consultation bill, and we, uh, I took great pains to ensure that organizations like the Chamber of Commerce actually came to the table. I went and visited um, a number of Chambers of Commerce myself, spoke at Chambers of Commerce, talked about why we were doing the review in the first place. And certainly some of the things that Ian uh, was talking about uh, were uh, challenges that were facing the uh, the retail sector it's more than two years ago. This isn't uh, you know the automation of tellers and that type of thing isn't something uh, that's new to the retail trade. But certainly, what we saw as we we went out there was as an increasing amount of individuals in our society that are working 35, 40, and sometimes in excess of those hours a week, and are uh, and are living in poverty. And that's not what Ontario is all about. That's not the country that my uh, that my parents moved to, and a lot of people in this province. This is a land of opportunity. There was a sense that things had become unbalanced. 
when the advisors went out and talked to people around the province of Ontario, they heard uh, they heard of some of the experiences of the insecurity of the way that the world of work has changed. And you have to think, Bill, we haven't looked at these pieces of legislation, the Employment Standards Act or the Labor Relations Act, since the mid-'90s. And we've never looked at them in conjunction with each other in the history of the province. So uh, you think of the world of work in the mid-'90s that you and I were in, uh, entirely different now for young people, uh, you know, for a young person that is going out into that world of work. I expected a full-time job. I expected a permanent job. I was going to work my tail off, and perhaps I'd have three or four employers over my entire career. There'd be some benefits, some pensions, and there was a decency and there was a fairness in the workplace. Uh, We've seen the erosion of that now. Young people are going out into this contract work, this temporary work. People are doing what we ask them to do. Young people are taking the educational uh, courses we ask them to do. They're getting the, you know, they're getting the um, apprenticeships and they're getting the diplomas. They're getting the, uh, you know, everything else, the degrees, and they go out into the workforce. They're faced with part-time work. Um, and, you know, at half the rate of somebody that's working full-time, they're faced with contract work, temporary work. They try to leave home. They try to go out on their own, and uh, the contract runs out, the rent money runs out, and they're back in their parents' house again in their late 20s. Uh, it's something that uh, is not unique to Ontario, Bill. It's something we're seeing right across North America. But with that in mind, uh, and, and I don't disagree with that scenario. God knows we hear that just about every day, and I'm sure you do too, Kevin. Oh, yeah. But the, the problem that, that I'm hearing from small business now is, yeah, you know what? It it sucks that it is that way, but with this new increase and this new pressure you put on my payroll uh, as a small business person, I can't hire that guy out of community college or that individual that's retrained. I just don't have the wherewithal to do that. Well, I I would challenge that, Bill. I, I'm a small business person myself, Uh you know, I'm a member of the Chamber of Commerce and mm-hmm. uh, you know, have lived those days where the bank got paid and the car company got paid and the employees got paid and everybody got paid but me. I, I know what it's like to run a small business. I know, I know what uh, the challenges are of that. Uh, we've, we've involved small business and we'll work with small business continuing uh, on as this legislation winds its way through the committee process. When uh, you say work with small business, in what regard would you would you consider things like uh, like incentive programs or some sort of financial assistance for business? Because well, uh, I'm, I'm hearing some pretty drastic stories about, well, we're going to have to lay people off or we're going to hire. We're not going to be able to do this. We're not going to be able to do that. We're going to have to raise prices, and that causes inflation. And, and that can spiral out of control if you're not watching it, too. Well, the evidence suggests otherwise from the studies that I've seen, Bill. And obviously these concerns are real, and obviously it's a change that is, uh, you know, it will be 18 months in the coming should the legislation should the legislation pass, but I, I don't think you can take your eye off the main off the main topic here. It's a challenge for business. It's a challenge for business when the price of fuel goes up. It's a challenge for business when bank fees go up, and it's one of those things you just face as a business person. I've met a number of companies as a result of this. People that belong to the Better Way Alliance, for example, or to uh, the Benefit Corp. They've realized. Uh, and smartly and rightly so, that the biggest strength that they have is the individuals they have that are working for them and uh, have already been paying them a living wage. So they're paying, them, they're paying them a wage that allows them to be able to live in that community, to pay rent, to buy food, to buy diapers for their kids, to put shoes on their kids' feet. Sure, surely we want a minimum wage, and this isn't a maximum wage, this is a minimum wage. Surely we want a minimum wage in the province of Ontario that allows us 
to have employees that also live a life of dignity and respect. And this money's not being hidden in the Cayman Islands. You increase the minimum wage, every cent of that goes right back into the communities, into those small businesses themselves. So the studies I've seen are either inconclusive or there's no discernible um, effect either way. But what, what's happened now, Bill, is across Ontario, I was shocked when I read this, that the we used to think of it as a student wage, as a kid's wage, as a trainee's wage, something where you got your... And, and that characterization has still been used in this argument, that, oh, these are just kids, what's the oh big deal? Oh, my God, no. Any, anything but, anything but. What, what shocked me was that uh, half of the workers in Ontario that, learn, that earn less than $15 an hour, Bill, are between the ages of 25 and 64, are in the prime of their careers. It's not kids anymore. It's ordinary people trying to scrape by as they see these free trade deals going on and all the highfalutin economics uh, at the top level, and they're wondering, who's looking after me? Where, I, where, where do I get a say in this? And, and, and I guess this comes down to perspective, I guess. And, and I guess we had a debate on the program a couple of weeks ago, Kevin, about, about a living wage, for instance. And, you know, there's some push in, in different areas of the province now to do something about that. And, and this is, I, in part, I guess, the province's response. And, and personally, I don't mind, okay? Uh, if I go into Tim's and I get my, and they tell me, you know, my coffee's going to be 30 cents more, if I know that that 30 cents is going into the pocket of the lady who's serving me, I'm okay with that. So what I. bothers me is when they say your coffee's going up 30 cents and it's to pay for those TV monitors and for the lattes and the same. <laughs> That's corporate stuff, and I have no problem. I, I got a real problem with that. I have the, I have the same issue, and I, I would hate to see increases to the minimum wage because I think you've just expressed a sentiment that I, I must have heard hundreds of times since we introduced this legislation. You know, when you figure when you look at the polling on minimum wage and what people think about it and you know, this uh, there's an overwhelming majority of Ontarians do not earn the minimum wage. But an overwhelming majority of Ontarians want to firm minimum wage in the $15 an hour range. So that that's that tells me that there's some people, you know, the Ontario economy is doing very very well. We're leading the G7 in economic growth. Um, unemployment rates like we haven't seen in years. There's jobs out there. Things are bubbling along really well, but there's a there's a segment of our society that's not that's not sharing in that prosperity. And even the people that are doing well know that. Even the people that are doing well realize, or just think. You know, you go home from your good job. I've got a good job, Bill. You've got a great job. Go home at night and think: Could you live on eleven dollars and forty cents an hour? Could you raise a family on eleven dollars and forty cents an hour? And the answer is simply: In Ontario in 2017, you could not. You cannot. And anybody that thinks they should, uh, they should or they could, maybe wants to try it themselves. I was talking to a gentleman yesterday in Cambridge that runs a tea company, and he was saying that when he first started, he wanted to treat his employees well. He was paying them twelve dollars and fifty cents an hour. Then he went and visited the homes of some of his employees just in a social perspective and was shocked at how they were forced to live and went back and raised his rates to over $16 an hour. So, I mean, there are people out there, Bill, that I think get this, and I think it's a majority of Ontarians because Ontario's had such a rich tradition through all three political parties of having decency and fairness in the workplace. And surely to God, if you're working 35 or 40 hours a week, you should be able to put shoes on your kids' feet. I, I got about 30 seconds left here, uh, Kevin. Uh, when we talked with the Ontario Chamber, uh, just as this policy was announced a week or so ago, they suggested at that time they'd like to have further dialogue with you to talk about the implications and perhaps some strategies. Are you open to that? 
Absolutely, 100%. As I said, I'm a huge chamber supporter. The Oakville Chamber, where I'm from, is an organization that is second to none. I'd like to stand up on the same page. I want competitive business, successful business, but we've got to treat people with dignity and respect, and they've got to be able to earn a living. You shouldn't work in Ontario and live in poverty. Kevin Flynn, the uh, Minister of Labor for the Ontario Government, of course. Kevin, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so much for this today. My pleasure, Bill. Take care. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Well, yesterday was a massive day in Washington, of course, on Capitol Hill. Former FBI Director James Comey testified in front of a Senate Intelligence Committee. Uh, Boy, where do you begin? He said that he uh, chronicled the conversations between himself and President Trump and uh, later he uh, tipped off the media. He admitted that he leaked under oath. He said, yeah, he leaked a document to try to get a special prosecutor uh, appointed, which, by the way, did happen. But uh, there were ebbs and flows about this, and, and one of the key parts of this was the uh, conversation that Comey had with Trump. We were told that, uh, that President Trump cleared the room, except for Comey, told him to stay behind. And as Comey uh, articulates, uh, he said the president uh, tried to get him to drop the case against Flynn. See your way clear to let this thing go. He's a good guy, etc. And uh, Comey characterized it this way. I took it as a direction. Right. I mean, this is the President of the United States with me alone saying, I hope this. I took it as this is what he wants me to do. Now, I didn't, I didn't obey that, but that's the way I took it. Uh, Laura Babcock watched the whole proceedings yesterday, as millions of others did, of course. She, of course, the president of Power Group, and she joins us here on the Bill Kelly on CH- Bill Kelly Show on CHML. Laura, thank you so much for the time. Uh, I, first of all, your reaction as you were watching this. Go back in time about 21 hours ago to when this whole thing was going on. Uh, there, there, there were points where this whole thing seemed incredulous. It seemed surreal, uh, dramatic at times, uh, a, a little weird at times when... Uh, uh, when John McCain started his questions, I mean, it, it really ran the gamut, didn't it? It really did. It felt like watching the end of a political drama movie, you know, something like uh, A Few Good Men or something like that. It's yeah, like, were you waiting for that you-can't-handle-the-truth yeah. moment? <laughs> well, we almost got it. I yeah. mean, there was, there, if you look at the headlines around the United States, the major market papers, including the, the trifecta of papers that Trump reads, they all came away with, FBI director calls president a liar. I mean, so it did not disappoint from the point of view of, as you said, Comey articulated very clearly that things were lies, pure and simple, that he felt he had been ordered by the president. Uh, so, I mean, there it wasn't as though there was a lot of bloviating by senators like you sometimes see in these, these hearings. Uh, they didn't waste their time talking about themselves or reaffirming their political stripes. They they literally asked lots of questions. He had rapid answers. He didn't appear in any way to be obfuscating or searching for a politically correct response or a safe response. It was diametrically opposed to the previous day's hearings by the same Senate committee, where you had some of the other heads of intelligence not offering full, honest answers. And so I think many of us went into the Comey testimony thinking, oh, no, is this going to be a repeat of the day before? Is this going to be a lot of I can't answer that, I won't answer that? It wasn't like that at all. It was almost like I felt like uh, either a kind of a Mr. Smith goes to Washington in terms of Comey's integrity and honesty, or you might be a little bit of Abe Lincoln. You know, we always heard about Abe Lincoln as this incredibly tall, ambling, honest, man uh, with no guile. And Jim Comey was in, was very much that way. In fact, when he spent his opening statement, Bill, 
apologizing to his colleagues in the FBI and and saying, you know, really sorrowfully that he didn't get to say goodbye to them and that he was sorry he put them through this pain. I mean, it was it was hard not to like Jim Comey and think of him as an honest broker when you watched him yesterday. Talk about language, and that's an important part, and I, I made notes about that through the course of, of watching this whole thing yesterday. Invariably, when you get up there on on, 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 on the hill there, Capitol Hill, uh, and these sorts of hearings are going on, or whether they're doing speeches among each other in the, in the chamber, whatever the case, uh, it's usually rife with euphemisms. Uh, yesterday, Comey cut right to the quick. I mean, it was he just said, you know, Donald Trump lied. He's a liar. His staff lied. You don't hear language like that very often in situations like this, and I think it took a few people off guard. And that's what I mean by the honesty of it. The, there were a couple of things that made him come across as incredibly credible. One was that he took accountability for his own failings when he said, you know, I'm not Captain Courageous. I lacked courage. I could have been stronger. He really seemed to be self-reflective and take personal accountability, which I think scores a lot of points with people out there. We understand uh, that when you're able to say you screwed up, it, it makes you more credible. The other thing was with his language. He didn't just speak in clear terms like when he said, those are lies, pure and simple, which was the headline on the LA Times this morning. What he also did was he was folksy. And if you remember how clever and successful Bill Clinton was with that folksiness, here you have Comey saying things like, Lordy, I, I hope there's tape, you know, which was an immediate headline. And when he said, you know, when they said, well, why did you leak to your friend at the professor? Uh, why didn't you just give your memos to the media? He said, because they're up my driveway. Like a, it would be like feeding a flock of seagulls on the beach, you know. And, and people laughed because people understood that kind of folksy language. And one of my favorites was when one of the senators said, why should we believe you? And he said, my mama taught me not to talk about myself like that, so I, I can't answer that. In other words, I'm not allowed to brag about myself. That's how I was raised. That kind of folksy, honest, colorful language really not only is clickable and, and quotable, but it also, I think, makes him seem real and not like some practice bureaucrat who is coming in to litigate for himself. I, you mentioned the, uh, the, the the demeanor of the committee themselves, and, and I was struck by how professional they all were, too. I mean, it would have been so easy uh, given some of the, the vitriol and some of the rhetoric that we've heard coming up to this date uh, for them to play the partisan role. And, and it didn't happen much. A little bit on Rubio's part, but he still, uh, I think, seemed to toe the line and be right down the middle. Uh, and and it, it struck me that it added, I think, and elevated everybody's game as, as the testimony went on. Yeah, and they had probably the biggest audience they were ever going to get. I mean, it was a, it was called the Comey Bowl. I mean, there was uh, it was an unprecedented TV event, really. I mean, you, the, unless you think about the Nixon final days of those hearings, I don't think that there was a TV audience for a Senate hearing like we saw yesterday. And so it, there was a possibility that they would try to take advantage and hog the spotlight. I was impressed by the senators. You could almost not tell who was a Republican or a Democrat. I mean, some of the Republicans were trying to give Trump a little bit of cover, saying, you know, he said he hoped. That's hardly him ordering you. And Comey was very clear and saying, well, I took it as an order, which I think is important for the record. But it, you really felt that it was a fair, professional inquiry. And I appreciated how many questions got asked and how many got answered. It was the kind of TV that you really couldn't turn away from because it was just moving at that kind of a clip. And that's why I say it felt more like 
the culmination, the climax of a, of a legal movie where there's real action in the courtroom than what we typically see in these Senate hearings, the back and forth and obfuscating, and I can't comment on that. So it was good from that point of view. But I think most importantly, a takeaway on this was that Comey came across as being human and credible. And if it's a credibility contest, you know, you've got uh, the the prime the uh, sorry the president's private lawyer came out immediately after and gave a press conference where there were factual inaccuracies in his own defense. You know, so there was a lack of credibility in some of the things that Trump's lawyer said right afterwards. And and you've got Trump hailing this morning that he's totally vindicated, but everybody else is picking up the headline that he he in fact is a liar. So. On a credibility point of view, Comey wanted to establish his own credibility, the credibility of the institution of the FBI, and I think he succeeded at that. A couple of things about that, and I want to talk about the, the vindication angle on this, too, because obviously uh, that's, that's one of the things, as you say, his personal lawyer played up yesterday, Alan Dershowitz, who's been a, a commentator back and forth uh, and, and a, a very respected jurist in the States, obviously, although he was on the OJ defense team, but we digress, uh, was also saying, look, drop this whole thing about obstruction of justice. There's just no case for it. But that's his opinion. Uh, you can bring out 20 lawyers who are going to say the same thing. But what they were doing was was taking, as, as Trump usually does, taking something out of context and saying, well, that validates our argument. Uh, Comey did not say that, that Trump was not under investigation. He said that as, as of May 6th when he left, there was no investigation. But he followed that up in the very next breath by saying that he had every assurance that the acting director was investigating Trump right now. And this is the thing. Uh, the Trump supporters, and we've seen a lot of this in the last you know, 12 hours, are going to extrapolate from that hearing the things that they think helped their case. And there were a couple of things. The fact that Comey was very clear that he had said to Trump on three occasions, you are not currently under investigation, and Comey explained his rationale for that. But that does say that, you know, what Trump said in that odd letter firing Comey, you know, that you absolved me three times. By the way, it keeps reminding me of that biblical scene in the garden about, you know, yes. you denied me thrice, right? Um, but in any event, beyond that, so you had Comey give that, and, and sure, the right is going to take that and run with it and say, you know, Trump's vindicated on that point. But you also had Comey say clearly, it's not for me to say that this is obstruction of justice. It's There is an investigation going, and I thought his alluding to the extent of Mueller's investigation was actually quite quite troubling. For If I were Flynn, or if I were Sessions, uh, Jeff Sessions, the Attorney General, or if I were somebody else, one of Trump's so-called satellites that had something to do possibly with helping Russia with the U.S. election tampering, uh, I would be very concerned by what Comey's testimony actually said. He pretty much laid the, you know, set the table to say that Mueller is, is looking into things seriously. And, and even Trump, I think, from a legal point of view, Comey let it open up that, you know, Trump may in fact now be a target of this investigation. So I don't think that Trump's team in any way ran away with with legal assurances of any kind. And Alan Dershowitz, I listened to his argument very carefully, and he does cite the fact that constitutionally him and Comey agree that the president can fire the FBI director. It's not a norm, and it might not be morally or ethically right. But I don't think if there's going to be articles of impeachment against President Trump, it's going to rest whether or not there's a constitutional ability to fire the FBI director. There are so many other pieces of this puzzle that if Democrats get you know, the House in, in the midterm elections, they'll be able to pursue against Trump. 
Um, so, I mean, it, it wasn't a vindication for Trump. And right now, they just announced that they're going to try to investigate Comey based on the fact that he gave those memos of his to his friend as a leak. Well, it wasn't classified information. There wasn't privilege surrounding it. And it's probably not going to go anywhere. No, that's he, that's a red herring. I mean, that's just that's Trump lawyer trying to dra- grab a headline and try to, to spin it that way. But there's another element to this, too. And, and you were bang on in bringing this up. Is when you and you look at the way that this whole thing is being coerced and spun right now. First of all, I don't think there's very few, people, very many people at all that are ever thinking this is going to lead to impeachment like it did in '74 with Nixon. Uh, and the question was not why did you fire uh, Comey. Uh, and, and as Comey mentioned yesterday during his testimony, he says, you know, that, it, that that's wrong. But he says a lot of that's on me because he says personally, yeah, I'm upset that I got canned. But it's it, the president tried to tell Comey how to do his job. And that is not within the purview of what the FBI director is supposed to do. They do not get their marching orders from the president. Not this FBI director, not this president, not any president. And the defense that the Republicans came up with was, well, Trump didn't know. He's the leader. He's the commander in chief. He bloody well should know. In other words, they're saying, well, he's not that smart. So so give him a pass on this. And, And people seem to buy that as an excuse. Well, there are two points to that. I mean, again, to Dershowitz. Uh, you and I are obviously are not lawyers, but Dershowitz made a powerful case that technically, technically, the executive branch lead does have that power to, to guide investigations or to cancel investigations. And while that may be true, it is this is about a political sin. This is about a perception of influence wielding, a perception of trying to obstruct justice. You know, the Congress does not need a legal case to file impeachment. They don't. They just need a belief of high crimes and misdemeanors, and that's very subjective. So Trump is not out of the woods in any way on a political framework from this. And if you look at the Quinnipiac poll numbers, he's down to an approval rating of 34 percent. Gallup has him at 38. But more significantly, there's been other polling done with his core base of white males with uh, you know, who don't have secondary or, uh, you know, higher education. And he's dropped 10 points with them. So his base is eroding from the point of view of, of being, you know, defenders of this man to the end of thinking that he's the guy who's going to go up and blow up Washington. What they've seen is a lot of scandal, distraction, ineffectuality in terms of a lot of his agenda, a health care bill that stalled, tax reform that seems MIA. So really... Trump can put out these these sort of technical splicing and dicing of what happened yesterday. They can claim victory to the cows come home. But the numbers aren't showing that the Americans are buying that. And when you look at even that Georgia special election, the Democrats now have a, a lead on in that race. And so there is eroding of the Trump factor, the Trump base in the United States. Now, that's not to say he can't recover it. I've never underestimated Trump. But yesterday was not a great day for Trump, and, and they will they will herald any victory they can get, and they'll play any games that they can, and that's, that's you know, their purview to do. But the reality is, is that I think people watching around the world saw what looked like a very credible, honest man saying that he feels as though this president is a liar. And that is something that, if you take away all the other noise, Bill, is historically a significant moment. I know, and as again, I watched and rewatched Dershowitz and his comments, as, as you did yesterday as well. Uh, I, I, I submit to the fact that Dershowitz probably knows a lot more about constitutional law than I'll ever want to know. But what he doesn't take into consideration, nor did he comment on when he was talking about how technically, from the constitutional standpoint, the president can call an investigation off. He's calling off an investigation that could well include him and certainly does include members of his campaign team and possibly of his staff. There's an optical thing to that as well where you have to wonder about conflict of interest. And Dershowitz never touched on that. 
Absolutely. And, and I think the other point to that is that when you look back at Nixon, I mean, yes, there was a crime of breaking into the DNC headquarters in the Watergate Hotel and the cover-up of that crime and, and, and you know, trying to push other people to shut down the investigation into Watergate. All of that existed. But what we're talking about here, which I think Comey was, was quite dramatic and brilliant in saying, is this is about a foreign a foreign enemy adversary, you know, essentially attacking, invading the United States from a from a cyber point of view, trying to attack that bright city on the hill to use that, that Reagan line. And anyone, anyone who is involved in assisting them, that is a big deal. In other words, uh, this is not just about whether or not you like Trump or you don't, or you think he likes Comey or you don't, or you think he can fire the FBI director or he can't. This is about what could be treason. Then I'm not suggesting Trump is guilty of treason, but this is the kind of crime they're talking about. So this is bigger, and that's why you had some people from the Watergate era, some people involved in that prosecution, saying that this is bigger than Watergate in terms of the ramifications, if anyone really is found to have been assisting the Russians. So Comey was careful to position it back in terms of that that really historical, global kind of uh Kind of framework. Well, and he did touch on that in his testimony, and I can't remember which senator was actually talking to him about that at the time, but, but Comey reiterated that he, there was no doubt in his mind that there was Russian involvement in the last U.S. election. Uh, and when the, the follow-up question was asked, was there anybody that was complicit in that? In other words, any Americans that may have aided and abetted? He said, we don't know that yet. He didn't say, no, we didn't find it. He said, we don't know that yet, which and tells me this is an ongoing warrant. investigation. And then he issued a warning that would have given me chills if I were Manafort or anybody else who's been, whose names have popped up in that. He said, you know, if you are found to be helping the Russians, that's a big deal. I mean, coming from the former FBI director, who knows very well that the other FBI director, who is former director who's running this special investigation with broad-ranging powers, I'd be pretty terrified by that. So, you know, this is, this is bigger than just whether or not Trump can spin his way out of his, his particular firing and hiring styles. This is about possible, as I said, treason. Beyond obstruction of justice, this could be a really big thing. So, you know, we're early on in this, but I think yesterday Comey laid some groundwork on the record under oath and we haven't heard Trump under oath. And so right now, what is on the record in front of the Senate intel and the world is a perception that this FBI director has grave concerns about the executive branch. And we cannot forget the historical significance of that in spite of the reality show that is Donald Trump. Laura Babcock, president of Power Group. We haven't even touched on the possibility of tapes and more, so lots more to come on this. Thanks again, Laura. My pleasure. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Of course, there was a general election in the U.K. yesterday, uh, which surprised an awful lot of people because, uh, well, it was not within the mandate, uh, but she, uh, being uh, Prime Minister May, decided to call a snap election, hopefully to, I guess, reaffirm her uh, majority government as they move forward in the Brexit uh, talks and negotiations. Didn't quite work out that way. As it turned out, the Conservatives ended up with a minority government. They have made a deal with one of the smaller parties there to uh, work with them. But uh, I don't know if they're out of the woods on this just yet. Joining us to talk about the implications uh, politically and economically about what happened in the U.K. yesterday, Marvin Ryder, business professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. Good morning, Marvin. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you, Bill. A lot better than Theresa May. No kidding. That had to have shocked you. It shocked an awful lot of people yesterday. 
Well, yes and no. So let, let me take you back a few weeks. Why did Theresa May call this election? Yes, she said um, we ha- she had a majority in the parliament, but she wanted to strengthen that majority because there were people chirping on the sides around Brexit, what have you, not the least of which was the Scottish Nationalist Party. Uh, 54 people in the House of Commons out of the 650 from Scotland, and they were advocating that if you go ahead with Brexit, we want to uh, have a re- another referendum on Scotland, Scotland separating from the United Kingdom. And she felt, I think, that not only could she strengthen her position, but she could do so by weakening their position. And if she could get rid of some of that internal chirping, she could better focus on the need at hand. She did not achieve the majority. She uh, uh, 325 is what you need, 326 is what you need for a majority. She got about 318, I think, is the final tally. Uh, But she did get something. The Scotland National Party lost a lot of seats. I think it was something like 19 seats. Uh, And sincerely, they've been quite diminished. So she's lost a a foe, if you will. She's weakened a foe, which is good, but she's also weakened herself. That's interesting about the the Scottish referendum, and I'm glad you brought that up because there's a a subplot to that as well. Uh, Scotland, of course, is one of the uh, unique parts of the UK. Uh, they are obviously part of the Greater Parliament, and they were involved in that. But they also have their own Parliament, um, and 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 of course, First Minister Sturgeon or Prime Minister Sturgeon, uh, depending on your outlook in Scotland, uh, was advocating for this and and hoping that they were going to get a reaffirmation in this general UK election. And and I guess this pretty much kills this whole idea of a referendum now, doesn't it? Well, I, I never never say never, Bill. Yeah. It's a bit like uh, the Quebec referendum situation. Never say never, but it certainly seems like it's not going to happen in the next few years, uh, given what's what's happened in this election. So, as I say, she lost an f- internal foe, but she weakened herself internally. Now, as you know, with a minority parliament, you can't really go forward. Any vote you have, you could lose. So you need an ally, and it's also interesting. Uh, a winner, I'll say, of last night, a little teeny tiny party, only got elected in 10 places, but that's more than enough when you add it to the 318 to get a majority, and that's called the Democratic Union Party. Now, where's that from? Well, those people were all elected in Northern Ireland. They're very conservative, in fact, much more conservative than Theresa May. Uh, to give you an example, for instance, they're not in favor of same-sex marriage. They're, they're still against abortion rights for women. But uh, I'll say something that maybe is a little liberal about them. They're fine with Britain leaving the European Union as long as the border between Northern Ireland and uh, the Republic of Ireland is porous, meaning that people can easily move from one side to another. So she's decided to get into bed with these people. We don't think she's going to adopt some of their ultra-conservative policies, but if she negotiates Brexit, if they continue to say, you want our support, you got to make this border porous. Remember why Brexit happened in the first place. People did not want a porous border. They wanted to put up, for lack of a better term, a wall and, and separate England from the rest of the European Union. Now, how does she negotiate the Brexit she wants, which is a hard exit, when she's got people advocating for a soft exit, like proper up in the government? Well, and how much play is there here? I mean, she's got to appease and, and, and appeal to this, this small little party, these 10 seats there. Or, or she's going to go down in, in flames uh, very, very shortly, and I think she's acutely aware of that. The other subplot, of course, of what happened yesterday was the rise of the Labour Party, which nobody saw at the beginning of this election right now. Uh, as a matter of fact, Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the party, a lot of people thought was on his way out, uh, and now he's the darling of an awful lot of people in the U.K. Absolutely. He, he seemed to be damaged goods. He, he had a bit of damage, if you will, from the Brexit vote. 
Um, and, and people thought, you know, this, this is his swung song. I think this is again why Theresa May called this. She thought he was quite a wounded leader and that he just wouldn't be effective. Now, something she could never have imagined when she called this election, and we can't diminish this, is that there have been two terrorist attacks uh, during yeah. the course of this election, one in Manchester, one in London, the one in Manchester leading to a, a bigger loss of life, but any loss of life is severe. And, and one wonders, you know, it's hard to know at this moment, because we'll, we'll get the polls down the road, just how much that weighed into things. Did people feel that maybe taking too hard a stance uh, was a bad thing? Were people rethinking Brexit? Or maybe this reinforced their idea about Brexit? We, we just don't know. But Labour was able to come in there and remind people, as Bob Ray did nearly 30, 40 years ago, that this was an unnecessary election. It's a waste of money. Look, we've already spent this money on a referendum that was close. Why do we need this? She had the mandate. Why are you doing this? And then they were able to question, well, look, you know, you're the leader, and yet these things are happening right in our midst. How can we trust you as you go forward? And I think it opened the door. Now, this wasn't a huge victory for, for Jeremy Corbyn. Obviously, he, he increased his number of seats. But many of these races were very razor thin. And I think what you're seeing from the people in Britain now is great, great confusion. We're not sure if we want to turn left or if we want to turn right. And I think this is the parliament they got. Well, and it's going to be interesting to see what kind of influence Corbyn's going to have as the opposition leader now in this minority parliament, because it's a much different approach to government uh, than the conservatives have had for the last little while. Uh, you know, even when Tony Blair was the leader of the, Liber uh, the Labor Party over there and, and had a couple of different terms, of course, as prime minister, uh, I, his legacy for, was essentially moving the Labor Party to the middle, much more so than a lot of people in the Labor Party really were comfortable with. Corbyn has gone hard left again and taken these guys way back and, and is talking about, you know, massive tax increases for corporations and things of this nature. Uh, is, is he going to have some influence? Is he going to try to twist uh, Prime Minister May's arm on some of these policies? Yeah, well, to be specific, or a little bit more specific, Bill, in particular what he's advocated is they've had eight years of austerity under the under the Tories, and uh, as many people in parts of the world, whether it's Greece or Italy or Spain, they're saying, okay, enough austerity. I've had enough austerity. Can't we go back? They're not looking for you to break open the floodgates and let the money keep rolling, but we've had enough of austerity. And then they also look around and they see other leaders who've chosen a different route, uh, Prime Minister Abe in Japan and Prime Minister Trudeau here in Canada, rather than austerity, they've actually borrowed money to stimulate the economy. And I think this is Jeremy Corbyn's argument to say, uh, we've had enough, we need to go somewhere else. Now, Theresa, in a way, doesn't have to appeal uh, or appease uh, Jeremy Corbyn in this. She can focus on trying to keep that one little party happy. But I think there's a message for her here that as you negotiate Brexit, you also need to realize you have a, a citizenry who are just tired. They are tired of eight years of austerity. They want a little a little benefit, a little bonus that, uh, hey, we got through the worst of it. Things are a little better now. And so uh, not unlike our own premier here in Ontario, they'd like to see a few little benefits, a few little few little nuggets. And I think that's one of the things Theresa's going to have to do as she's negotiating this momentous decision to leave the European Union. She's going to have to come up with a few little gems for her own citizens if she plans to be reelected when the next election happens probably in four years. What's this going to do to the Brexit negotiations? Uh, 24 hours ago, Prime Minister May was dealing with uh, some authority, obviously, as the leader of a majority government. Uh, not so much anymore. And, and for those over in, well, frankly, Germany and France and some of the other nations that she's going to be negotiating with right now, that are looking for a chink in that armor. They just found it, didn't they? <laughs> well, yes, in a way. So we've already had some tweets 
not Donald Trump-like tweets, but other kinds of tweet, tweets out there. Uh, the first from the from the negotiator in the Brexit thing says, uh, "Now that the election is over, uh, we're ready to start talking whenever you are, Teresa." So uh, they realize that she can't start tomorrow to negotiate it, but the clock is ticking. They activated this article that would cause them to leave the European Union in two years. That's a firm date. Things have to be negotiated by that date. You don't have to start today or tomorrow, but we'd better get started. So there are people ready to talk about this. And then, again, remember, she wanted this this uh, hard exit. Uh, some people wanted a soft exit. I think people who uh, her, her position has been diminished on this. And, and this will actually give some power to people like uh, the Chancellor, uh, Angela Merkel, uh, who may very well say, well, now, you know, you're wounded in this. Here are my terms, kind of take it or leave it. I think it's going to be a very interesting negotiation, in part because not only does Britain want certain things, but the European Union wants certain things, and that is that this sets the precedent. So however they negotiate this, whatever the final deal is, it would tell any other country thinking about leaving the European Union, this is the kind of deal you're going to get. For the European Union, they want to be a bit punitive. You know, you, you came in, now you're going, all right, then take your hat and, and get the hell out of here. Theresa May probably wants something else. And I, I think the negotiations have actually gotten much tougher. Rather than getting a stronger mandate, she's been weakened dramatically. And with that in mind, let's let's talk about her future here now. Um, and again, you know, going back to that adage about politics makes strange bedfellows, and now she's obviously creating an alliance with a party that nobody ever thought the Conservatives would be. Uh, creating an alliance with, as you say, the folks from Northern Ireland who are even more hard right than than the conservative policies of her and her predecessors. So that's that. So she's got this stuff on the domestic front. She's got Brexit going on, and she's got to move the ball on that. And at the same time, there is dissension in the ranks, Marvin. I mean, the, you know, the calls for her resignation now are not well. Jeremy Corbyn did that, but you know, you expect that. But from with her own party, they're saying, you know what, you blew it. You you let us down the garden path here. Now we're 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 a party that's in in disarray. Uh, that you know we have not got the confidence of, of the the people of the of the UK right now. They wanted to step down. Now is is that just uh, post election uh, rhetoric or is there something to that? Well, I think there's always something to that. You know, clearly within our own party there will be uh, uh, factions that are not happy with this leadership at the moment. Now, when they get down to the serious talk of Brexit, they'll probably forget about this. She's indicated that she's got the same stamina as Margaret Thatcher on this. She wants to be Iron Lady, too, and uh, I'm going to ignore your calls and ignore the long knives, and I'm going to plow forward. Her argument does make some sense as well. Remember, David Cameron led this party until not all that long ago when he lost the Brexit vote, and then when he did that, he says, well, I have to step down. If she were to step down, you'd have a third run for the leadership. Now, there are certainly people in waiting, uh, Boris Johnson not the least of them, who say, uh, yeah, I might like to take a, cack, a crack at this, but I don't think she wants to open that door. I think she really wants to keep the door uh, slammed shut on all of this. Um, and I think she'll be able to do it at least for a while, but it'll really now depend upon her success in negotiating. If if she can get some what we'll call victories for Britain and all this, all will be forgiven. If instead somehow this is Britain being handed a mandate by some foreign power, uh, she may very well be shown the door. But she's got a much more complex situation right now when you look at what's happening oh, yeah. on the home front right now, uh, trying to, to keep the wolves at bay within her own party. Uh, a very aggressive opposition leader right now. Corbyn's got to feel awfully in, in, invigorated right now uh, that he's he's got something going with him right now and a lot of positive momentum. And at the same time, there are the other concerns. And these came up in the last two weeks of the election campaign. 
and and that goes back to to Theresa May's ability, uh, not just as a prime minister, but previous to that when she was home secretary. When it comes to homeland security, uh, policing, uh, things of this nature, the fight against terrorism, a lot of people raised some very serious questions about her ability to handle that file, and that's still out there. No, you're, you're absolutely right. So she she didn't emerge from this unscathed. She certainly is damaged goods, but she's indicated a willingness to sort of pull herself together and keep going forward and fight on all fronts. And I, I give her credit for that in a way. I think uh, we, we may, uh, I hate to say this, but we may still have some chauvinism in the ranks when people look at a, a female leader and, and think that, uh, well, one little bruise, one little battery, and she's done. Uh, she's, she's holding on. And by the way, Bill, just on that note, uh, something else that happened yesterday in the election, the largest number of women ever elected in a British election, over 200. Now, there's 650 seats, so they're not half of the House yet. But over 200, that's the most ever elected. I think that's also telling that at this same time of trouble, uh, people are turning both the men and women equally in, in their voting. Well, and there's another statistic there that I uh, was uh, quite surprised by, too, and it made a lot for the headlines in some of the London papers this morning. Uh, a higher than usual voter turnout among people under 25 uh, in this election, and uh, obviously they did not vote for the Conservatives. Does that send a message? Right. It, well, it does. So two uh, two parts of that. First, the highest voter turnout in over 25 years. I had actually expected it to be the other way around. I expected there to be a lot of voter fatigue, especially given Brexit and, you know, we've had enough voting. Let's just get on with the damn thing. So interesting they had this turnout, and then, as you point out, the highest among the young people voting, in part for Jeremy Corbyn, but also some of the other smaller parties were buoyed by them, people saying, younger people saying, look, we've, we've, we, we have more than two alternatives here. We're not sure either the two mainstream parties really are meeting our needs, and so they've, they've given some votes to other parties, not enough that they elected significant numbers of them, but at least they've engaged. And I, again, I think that bodes well for the future. We're always questioning this fact here in Canada, are we really having our young people engaged? Are they really coming out? And so they did take an interest in this election, and good for them. And and uh, was Brexit the, the catalyst for that? Uh, because uh, obviously if you start looking and, and, and dissecting that vote from that referendum from uh, last year, uh, an awful lot of the younger vote, uh, quite frankly, did not want Brexit to happen. Right. Was was this a protest vote against what, uh, what Prime Minister May is trying to do here? Two parts. So one part definitely was Brexit. Why? Because younger people see their future within the European Union, not specifically England, but European Union. And they could travel, they could study, they can work there, they can come back here. Younger people see the world really as their oyster, not one specific country. So I think that was part of it. But the other part of it was the Jeremy Corbyn message of austerity. There's a lot of younger people who are quite attracted to the idea that austerity is not necessarily the best way forward, that there is some other approaches that are working. And I mentioned Prime Minister Abe and Prime Minister Trudeau as, as an alternative to austerity, and I think younger people uh, really find some value in that. So Jeremy getting that kind of a conversation started and other parties picking up that baton, saying we really need to talk about things like a living wage and an improved minimum wage and improving the social safety net, I think they were very attracted to that as well. Uh, Stephen Fielding is a professor of politics at University of Nottingham. We've had him on the program uh, oftentimes in the past. Uh, he suggested that had uh, she won the majority yesterday, she would have become a political colossus in the U.K. Instead, she is now a zombie prime minister. <laughs> Nobody does re- political rhetoric like the Brits, do they? No, not, not at all. I don't, think, I don't think she's a zombie, but correct. He's absolutely correct. If she could have come from where she did, 
win this election in a big way, she would really have cemented her future to be Margaret Thatcher. Like, now she's going to have to do it in a, in a diplomatic way. And, uh, again, I think she's capable of doing that, but that wasn't her plan A. That's now plan B. Marvin Ryder at the DeGroote School of Business. Thanks as always, Marvin. Really appreciate the time today. My pleasure, Bill. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.